Good morning. Here at East Shore Baptist Church, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. We believe that every word of the Bible is true, every word comes from God, and there's not one part of the Bible that's more important than another, that all of it is God speaking to us. All of us tells us about who God is and about who Jesus is and the difference that can make in our lives. We believe all of God's word is inspired. However, the passage we're looking at today, um, I find to be kind of a, a holy ground because the passage we're looking at today, Mark 15, verses 33 through 39, describes not only the most important event in the Gospel of Mark, not only the most important event in the New Testament, not only the most important event in the entire Bible, but the most important event in the entire universe. Today we are talking about the death of Jesus Christ and how he was forsaken by God so that we would be accepted by God. And he did this because he is the perfect son of God who came to earth to save us. The passage we're looking at today is in some ways a difficult one to read, but its truth is essential for each and every one of our lives. And maybe this is the first time you've heard this, or maybe this is the thousandth time that you've heard this, but you will be accountable for how you respond to this truth. Because today we're going to see the perfect love of God that demands a response. As I've been kind of leading us through the Gospel of Mark, we've called this sermon series, Who is Jesus? Today we find that answer. How will you respond to God's love? Let's approach this holy text with reverence and find out together who is Jesus. If you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to Mark 15, again, verse 33. You could use the blue Bible and the seat back in front of you. And once you are there, I would ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's word and follow along as I read our passage for today. Mark chapter 15, that's big 15, then little 33. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 33 says, and when the sixth hour had come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Lord, in so many ways I feel unworthy to even 
read these words, to think about what your son did for us. God, I pray that in these moments we have together, you would focus our minds, our attentions on these powerful truths that, you, that your son was forsaken and rejected so that we, those who have turned from sin, trusted in him, that we would be accepted by you. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to do this for us, to take the punishment that should have been ours, to, as the song which sang just said, to heaven's gate to open wide to us. God, humble us before your word today. May our attention be on your son, Jesus Christ, the son of God. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. The outline this week is a little less complicated than uh, some I do. I'm, we're going to focus on three simple but earth-shaking truths. And the first of those is that on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God. Jesus was forsaken by God. Now, we don't use the word forsaken very much. It means rejected by God. Jesus was innocent. He had never done anything wrong, but he was arrested. He was put on trial. He was sentenced to death. And in the past few weeks, we've read about how all that happened. And then he was nailed to the cross. And our passage today picks up in verse 33, when Jesus had been on the cross for about three hours. It says when the sixth hour had come, we read last week that he was put on the cross about the third hour. So the third hour would have been about 9 a.m. It they counted time by how many hours after sunrise. So the sun normally rises sometime around six in the morning. So the third hour is 9 a.m. That's about when he was put on the cross. But it's now about the sixth hour. It's about noon. And we're told that there is darkness until the ninth hour or about 3 p.m. So it's the middle of the afternoon. There's not supposed to be darkness at this time. Now, some might say, well, perhaps it was a solar eclipse that came over then. The problem with that is the feast of the Jews that's happening this time is Passover. Passover happens during a full moon, and solar eclipses happen during a new moon. So it's not the time of year for that. This is a supernatural darkness. It's both a literal darkness, it's hard to see, but there's also something powerful going on. It's showing us something about God. Darkness has many associations in Scripture. In the Old Testament, it's tied in lament to mourning. For example, look at this passage that, that has echoes of what's happening in our text today. This is in the book of Amos. It's speaking about God's judgment. But look at the similarities here. God says on that day, I will make the sun go down at noon. Exactly what's happening here. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning, all your songs into lamentation. I will make it like the morning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. In some ways, it's God mourning the death of his only son. Why? Because his son Jesus is bearing God's wrath for the sins of his people. And we'll talk later how wonderful it is what Jesus is doing, but it's also a sad moment that this was even necessary. Earlier in Amos, speaking about this day, it says, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? 
gloom with no brightness in it. There's such a contrast here at the end of Christ's life. We're at Christmas time, and at Christmas we talk about how Christ was, was born. The text seems to say it was in the evening or it was at night, and angels appear to shepherds. It's midnight, a bright light shines, angels sing. They're thrown off by how much light there is in the middle of the night. But here, we're at noon, and the sky turns dark. God is mourning this moment, and it's also a sign of judgment. God is displeased with humanity, judging them for crucifying his son, giving a taste of the darkness that is to come. So those things are going on, but there's also something more important because at this moment, God's judgment is particularly coming on Jesus Christ. The text tells us that about the ninth hour, about 6 p.m., Jesus cries out in a loud voice in his native language of Aramaic. And Mark finds this so powerful, he puts his actual words he said in the text. Most of the time we're reading of course, we're reading in English, but the New Testament was written in Greek. But Jesus didn't talk in Greek. So these authors are saying, this is what Jesus said. We've translated it into Greek where we're telling you the story. But here he puts, these are the actual words Jesus said on the cross. And he translates it for us. It's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And these aren't random words. Jesus is quoting some words directly from the Old Testament. There won't be another slide there. It's Psalm 22, verse 1. It's those words right there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he use those words? Because that's literally what's happening to him right there. God is forsaking him. I like the Protestant reformer John Calvin put it well. Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, this God-forsakenness, by quoting the only verse of scripture which actually described it and which he had perfectly fulfilled. Jesus is feeling being forsaken by God. And these words are so holy, so different, so mysterious. I, I don't think it's possible for us to fully wrap our minds around what Jesus was experiencing. Because in this moment, more than any other person ever had or ever will, he's feeling the pain of being abandoned by the Lord. Yet at the same time, he knows it will lead to the hope of salvation. Now, we may wonder, well, why was God doing this? Why was he forsaking Christ on the cross? Why did he have to do this? And the answer is because of who God is. God is holy. He is perfectly good, righteous and just. He's the perfection of everything that is good. One Old Testament prophet says of God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is perfectly good and holy, so he turns his loving, gracious presence away from all sin, but also in this moment away from his son. Since God's holy and good, he must judge and punish sin. We want him to do this. When there's wrong in the world, we want it to be made right. And that's what God does. He rights all wrongs. He has to punish sin. The prophet Isaiah describes it this way. Um, he's speaking to people who were praying to God, but God didn't seem to be helping them. And Isaiah tells them why. He says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sin have made a separation between you and God. 
your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Yes, God is love, but he's also holy and just. And so when there is sin, God turns away his love from it and he punishes that sin wherever it is to be found. Maybe not right away, but he always does it. And that's what's happening to Jesus in this moment. Now, maybe that sounds rough to you. You say, why does God have to punish sin? Why why can't he just let things go under the rug? Because again, he is perfect. And something cannot be perfect if there's a blemish in it. If you're trying to wash dishes and one dish has a spot on it, well, you can't say the dish is perfectly clean. That spot needs to be removed. If you're in school and your teacher's grading your paper, if you have a mistake in it, your teacher will mark it on the sheet. They cannot say you have a perfect paper without marking it. God is perfect. He cannot turn a blind eye to evil. He must punish sin. He must leave those in sin to their fate. And that's what's happening to Jesus. Jesus is not a sinner, but God has placed sin on him. He has never known separation from God. And that's what breaks his heart in this moment. Why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The late pastor Tim Keller said, Jesus bore as the substitute in our place the endless exclusion from God that the human race has merited or earned. We earned, we deserve to be excluded from God. He goes on to say, Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. He took this so that we would never have to be separated from God. You see this, this is what should have happened. We sinned and rebelled against God. We said, you know, God, I'm gonna do what I want, think is right. I'm going to make a decision for what I think's best in my life. That's how I'm going to live. We made that decision. We deserve to be cut off from God, separated from his love, punished for that sin. But instead, Jesus was in our place. He cried out with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that everyone who saw could understand that he was being forsaken and that those who would then know would realize that he was forsaken so we could be accepted. Also look very closely at these words when he says, my God, my God. He's quoting that verse, of course, but normally when Jesus talked to God, he called him my father. But in this one moment, in this one moment, God is not his father, but his judge. Don't mishear me here. Jesus is still God, but in this moment, he is carrying our sin. It's so difficult to wrap our minds around everything that's happening, but it's gloriously true. Many authors of scripture, Old and New Testament, marvel that this would happen and then that it did happen. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. God put our sin, our wrong on Jesus. He was the substitute for our sin. He suffered on our behalf. The Old Testament talks about animal sacrifices. When you sin, you're supposed to bring an animal. The animal died in place of your sin. Here, Jesus takes our sin, suffers for it, and dies instead. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, God, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, 
even though he knew no sin. Jesus never knew sin, but in this moment, he does. So that if we are in him, if we know him, we might become the righteousness, the goodness, the perfection of God. In this moment, so many images from the Bible are coming together. Another one we could think about is in the Old Testament when God saves his people from slavery in Egypt. He does that through an event called the Passover, where his angel comes through and, and kills all the firstborn of Egypt, unless there was blood from a lamb on the doorpost. But think about what happens right before that. There's plagues in Egypt that God brings on the Egyptians to try to get them to let God's people go. And the plague right before the Passover is darkness. There's darkness, and then the Passover lambs die, and God's people are. Here, there's darkness. Jesus, the Lamb of God, dies so that we, his people, could be free. Jesus took our sin so that we could be saved. If we turn from our sin, if we trust in him, that verse of 2 Corinthians is saying, we receive his righteousness instead of the sin we deserve. Jesus knew that this would happen. He saw it beforehand that he would fulfill scripture. Earlier in Mark, we read that even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a purchase to save many. Here he is doing that. Again, this, this moment, we it's so hard to fully grasp what Christ is experiencing here. It, it's, it's so difficult to try to understand this moment. But think about it. He is on the cross, and in this moment, he is carrying sin. The, he is not only carrying sin like having how awful it is, but he is being punished for it right there. God is pouring out his wrath, his judgment on him. The punishment for every lie, every murder, every act of abuse, all the moments of jealousy, pride, and hate, all on him, all at once. Have you ever seen something that was so evil, so terrible, you had to look away from it? Maybe it was um, something on television, something suffering during war someone was experiencing, or, or something from that happened in the past, images from, something like 9-11 or, or the Holocaust. This is... Jesus, though, carrying all of that now. He's not only carrying the pain of them, he's carrying their punishment. God is pouring his wrath and punishment on Christ. I came across this quote years ago from the late Pastor R.C. Sproul. Um, the italics is my emphasis, but I, I, I am moved by this thought. Sproul says, I do not even think Jesus was aware of the nails and the spear. He was so overwhelmed by the outer darkness. On the cross, Jesus was in the reality of hell. He was totally bereft, cut off from the grace and presence of God, utterly separated from all blessedness of the Father. On the cross, he was in the reality of hell. He was punished for every wrong that his people would commit. That's what hell is. Hell is for, if someone doesn't know Jesus, it is where they are punished for the wrongs that they have done. Eternal suffering because they have an eternal offense against God. They've rejected an eternal God for their own good. 
That's, that's what hell is. You, you are punished for the wrong, the, the sin, eternal sin against God. But Jesus is carrying that for all of his people in this moment. Now, nobody around him understands that this is happening. When he calls out to God, they get a little confused. And they say, oh, in verse 35, uh, they, some of them said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Because he said the word, Eloi, Eloi, which sounds like Elijah. They misunderstand. Someone decides to run and they fill a sponge with some sour wine that they give to him to drink so they can prolong his suffering and they can continue to mock him and say, wait, let us see if Elijah comes to take him down. And that way we can mock him even more when nobody comes to help him. Now, in a small sense, those words are another fulfillment from the Old Testament. Psalm 69 speaks about how they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. But in this moment, no one is coming, and Jesus is absolutely alone. And friends, this is what Jesus did for you. He took the wrath of God in your place. This is why Bible teachers, pastors get, get worked up when people use Jesus in other ways, because Jesus is not merely a human being. He's not merely an historical figure. He's not just someone who was a good teacher who said some nice things. He's not someone who wanted to start a, a cultural change. He's not just that. He's not just a human example for us, but he is a savior, a substitute sacrifice. What he did here is all important. And the cross of Jesus is the only place to go to escape God's wrath. He was fully, completely condemned by God. And because he was condemned, if we know him, we never have to be. Paul would say in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation, not for everyone, but for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was condemned in our place. And that's exactly where Mark goes next in our text. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we might be accepted by God. So that we might be accepted by God. Verse 37 talks about a loud cry Jesus gives. Perhaps that's what the John writes about in John 19.30. Because it says when Jesus received the sour wine, he then said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The other authors also say he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Maybe that's here. Regardless, our text is placing the action firmly in Jesus' control. He uttered this loud cry, and breathed his last. It's almost wrong to say that he was killed or that he died. It's more, he breathed his last. This would have looked so different for those who were watching it there. Because normally when somebody was crucified, they maybe ran out of air, but they would just slip unconscious and just kind of fade away. Jesus cries out with a loud cry, and then he dies. He gave up his life when he wanted to. As he says in the Gospel of John, he says, this is the reason the Father loves me. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. 
And remember what time of day this is happening. It was said there was darkness from about the sixth hour to about the ninth hour, so about 3 p.m. And that was about the time that priest would offer their daily sacrifices. That is when he's dying. He knows what he is doing. He is dying at the right time for the right reason to make his people right with God. And before this leading up to it, people have been mocking Jesus and insulting him, saying all kinds of things about him. But at this point in Mark's gospel, the mocking stops because the perfect sacrifice has been made and the greatest act of love in human history has been accomplished. How do we know Christ's work was accomplished, that he did what he set out to do? Well, that leads us into verse 38. Uh, this is my this is my wife's favorite passage, and I know some of you were at the, the women's Christmas dinner, and she spoke a little bit about it, because verse 38 tells us that the curtain that was in the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two from top to bottom. You may say, so what? A, a, a curtain got a little snag in it and tore apart. Well, what is the significance of that? The significance is so much in Scripture is coming together here. Let's go back to just for a moment to the very, very beginning. In the beginning, the Bible tells us that God created human beings to have a relationship with him. And they had a perfect relationship with God. You could talk to God, know him, they were together. It was perfect. But then sin came into the world. Sin separated humanity from God's loving presence. No longer could people stand before God. Remember, God has to punish sin. So people couldn't be before him on their own. And so, in the Old Testament, they had to interact with God in special ways. God graciously gave them a place they could go to meet with him. He gave them a tent called a tabernacle that then became a temple in Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, when he gives instructions for making this tabernacle, this is what he says. He says, you shall make a veil or a curtain of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, shall be made with pictures, cherubim worked into it. You shall hang this veil from clasp, and you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, there within, inside this veil. Here's what this veil, this curtain does. It separates for you the holy place of the tabernacle from the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence is. So the tabernacle was just a little curtain. When they built the temple, they built a magnificent curtain. It may have been as high as 60 feet, may have been as wide as 30 feet, but it was there for an important reason. It protected people from the all-holy power of God inside that curtain. In fact, when they first built this tabernacle, this is what happened. Moses, Moses, one of the most holy leaders of God's people, he was not able to enter that tent because God's cloud settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This most holy place there, in fact, was a place only one person could go once a year. The high priest of God's people would come in to, on the day of atonement, and he was the only one who could come into God's presence like that. My wife reminded me as, as I was preparing, and she was preparing a similar one, that um, Jewish tradition or some traditions say that the priest often would wear little bells on its rope so that they could hear him in there. Other tradition says that they tied a rope to him because in case he did something wrong in God's presence, God would have to punish sin and he could drop dead right there. 
And so no one else would die. They had the rope to be able to pull that body out. God's presence is holy. And to sin in God's presence is instant death. If we tried to walk up to God on our own, we could not survive in his presence. But here in our passage, something changes. Here, that curtain, that division is torn down. And note how it's torn. If it's 60 feet tall, if it's 30 feet tall, it's torn from top to bottom. It's not that somebody climbed up there and did it. No, God himself tore this curtain apart. Why did he do that? What does this verse mean? It means that our access to God's presence is restored. Where we were separated from God, now we can come to him. It means Christ's work, his death is completely sufficient. There's nothing else we have to do to make our way to God. He did it on our behalf. It proves that Jesus is our substitute, that he satisfied all of God's wrath, all of the punishment God needed to deal out in order to be just. He satisfied that, and he restores us to God. The separation between that holy place, that most holy place, is removed. We have access to the Lord. In the very instant that Jesus drew his last breath, his work was accomplished, totally, perfectly finished. He'd restored us to God. Nothing else needed to be done. This is what God's people had longed for for generations. In the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, they said, oh God, that you would rend, tear the heavens and come down. Now he has tore the curtain to come to us. The author of Hebrews really fleshes this out, that we have access to God's presence through the sacrifice of Christ and that this temple, this tabernacle, and its whole system is obsolete. For this reason, Hebrews 9.12 says, because he, Jesus, entered once for all to these holy places. He didn't do it like the priest by offering blood of goats and calves. No, he did it by the means of his own blood. He has secured for us an eternal redemption and salvation. He is the true tabernacle, Jesus, God in human flesh. Because he came, all barriers between us and God have been cast down. And so if we want to know God, we want to have intimacy, a friendship, a relationship with him, the only way to get it is through Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can add to it. There's no ritual you can do that makes you able to come before God. There's no rules to keep to earn your way to God. No, knowing Jesus alone as our Savior and Lord, that is how we come to God. Through him, we are totally cleansed, clean, able to be in God's presence. When Pastor David Platt put it this way, before the cross, we were afraid of God. Because of the cross, we are now friends of God. Friends, if, if this story, if this truth, if it doesn't change everything in your life, then you haven't understood what's happening here. Because everything else in our lives, every issue that we have, all our hopes, dreams, desires, all of that is nothing compared to this good news. Jesus has made a way for you to know God. It should change everything in your life. You never have to do a moment's work to say, well, is God happy with me today or not? Can I be before God today or not? You don't have to earn your position before God. Jesus tore down that curtain 
for you. Your sin held you back from a relationship with God. But in Jesus, that sin is forgiven. It's not that God looks at the wrong you did and say, oh, well, that's not really a big deal. We can put that aside. That's okay. We don't have to talk about that. No, Jesus paid for it. Jesus suffered for it. God punished him for that. He took it. He dealt with it. God punishes all sin, all wrong, all injustice. And here's the grand reality we have to face. If God punishes all wrong, that means one of two things. Either you will be punished for it for all eternity or Christ was on your behalf. And now you are free to come to God. That is the glorious message of freedom and joy to know he has done the work for us. It gives us confidence to come before God. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Look how he describes it. By the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh because he has died. He has opened this curtain for us. What does that mean? You can know God. You can talk to God. You can pray to him. You can have a relationship with him. You can tell him what's going on in your life and know that he hears, cares, and loves you. You don't need a pastor to to pray for you, to bring you to God. You don't need some super saint to stand in between you and the Lord. You can know God. Not because you're special, but because Jesus made a way. One pastor, Alistair Begg, says it this way, if we want to meet with God, we must go to Jesus. We no longer need a specific building or special icons or shrines. God meets with his people, not in places, but in the person of his son, the true temple. And he goes on, whatever day today is and whatever you are up to, there is nothing and no one standing between you and a living encounter with the holy God. That is what Jesus did for you. Why was he able to do that? Why was he able to do it rather than anyone else? Well, because he is the son of God. He was forsaken by God so that we would be accepted by God because he is the son of God. Our passage ends with this great confession here. Verse 39 says that there's this centurion. He's standing facing Jesus. And when he sees the way that Jesus breathes his last and dies, he says, truly this man was the son of God. This is a reaction from such an odd place. This is one of his executioners. This is a Roman soldier, a centurion. He would have been over about 100 men, thus the name centurion, century. But at this moment, he's probably over a small group of men supervising this crucifixion. But when he watches it, he sees that Jesus is innocent and he sees his purity and power. He sees something very different in his death. He's probably seen hundreds, if not thousands of executions, but something is different in how this man dies. And he proclaims the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. In this moment where he has just died, it would seem that All the evidence in the world says, no, he's not the son of God. This man says, I see he is the son of God. It's a dramatic moment revealing God's power and holiness. 
when, when I think of this, uh, and probably when we think of this story, there's images that pop in our heads or, or things that, that we remember associate with the crucifixion. When I think about this verse, my mind goes to actually a radio drama I heard once. Uh, there was a program called Adventures in Odyssey. I'm not a regular listener, but there's one episode they had which was about the, the death of Christ. And it's radio, so you're not seeing anything. It's you're hearing all the sounds. And it's Jesus on the cross. He says his last words. He dies. The other gospels talk about an earthquake, so there's great shaking, people reacting to it. And then silence. And this deep bass voice goes, truly, this man was the son of God. And then more silence. And then commercial break. But they still understood this is a powerful moment. They understood this. Now, we could nitpick this uh, verse to death. We could say, what does this centurion really understand? Does he know who Jesus is? Does he understand who God is? What sin is? Does he, did he pray a prayer? Does, does he know God? What happens to him? What happened after this? Mark isn't interested in answering those questions. His point is to you, to us, to reading this book today, do we come to the same conclusion? Do we read this and say, truly this man was the son of God? Do we see that he died to save us because he is the son of God? Another pastor, Jason Meyer, said, those who see what the cross is and what it does come to embrace who Jesus really is. If you look at this cross and all you see is a man dying, then you, then you don't see it's Jesus as the son of God. But if you see it's someone being forsaken, rejected by God, while making a way for his people to be accepted by God, then you come to Jesus. There's also something interesting in that it's this centurion who's not a Jew, he's a Gentile, he's part of the other nations that were at one time enemies of God's people saying this. If you remember when Jesus was being rejected by God, he quoted Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that that was from Psalm 22 and the very beginning of that Psalm. But look what happens at the end of that Psalm. Psalm 22, 27 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. This centurion is the first of many who will see Jesus for who he really is. Of the nations. We saw a video earlier, Pastor Tom shared those statistics about people around the world seeing who Jesus is here is one of the first who sees that he is the son of God. And friends, and this is really kind of the climax of this whole sermon series we've been doing through the Gospel of Mark. I've said every week the series is about who is Jesus? And the final best answer is he is the son of God. He is the son of God who laid down his life for us. That shows us what love really is. The perfect example of love is not a romantic comedy. It's not a Hallmark movie, any of the Christmas ones that are out now. It's not a, a steamy romance scene, no. First John tells us, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we might be accepted by God because he is the son of God. 
This is where we're kind of ending today. Not because the story ends here, but because there's a great transition that happens in this moment with this man's statement. I hinted at it before. Before this, we've had about two chapters of people mocking Jesus, throwing lies at him, seeking to, to kill him, saying he's not who he says it is. he is. But from this moment on, everyone Mark writes about believes in Jesus, confesses who he is, praises him, admires him. And this is the same dynamic that every person has when they hear this story, even today. You can either mock it and say, well, that's just a fairy tale that Christians tell. That, that didn't really happen. If it did, he, he just died and that was the end of the story. None of this other stuff is going on. Or, or you hear this and you believe, yes, this is the Son of God who died to save me. And God knows those who are his. Are you? Have you turned away from your sin and instead placed your faith and trust in Christ? Have you turned from that sin that made it necessary for Christ to be forsaken by God? Have you come to him because he's made that way for you to be accepted? That's the greatest Christmas gift that you can possibly receive this year is to come to know Jesus and to have a relationship with him. My prayer is that you have and you would come to know him today. You would talk to me or someone else about it, but really here's what we'll tell you. We'll tell you, come, go to God, pray to him, call out to him, tell him, Lord, I'm, I admit that I've sinned against you. I'm repenting, turning away from that sin and I am believing, trusting in you to save me because you died for me. I confess that you are my Lord, the one in charge. I commit my life to you. I encourage you to come to God with that. Talk to someone about that. Know him. And if you do know him, then I pray that this time is just an encouragement to your soul, that it was a reminder to you of what Christ has done for you, and that it leads you now and in the coming days and weeks to praise him for what he has done, because he alone is worthy.